to African Teapot Podcast. My name is Exi and I'm your host. Journey with me through Africa's vast variety of culture, heritage, and discuss issues most African families face, both home and abroad. Make sure you add this podcast to your frequent podcast rotations and don't forget to share and follow this podcast. Hello, African Teapot family. I want us to take a minute to put the people of Ukraine in our thoughts and prayers. We all watch the news and social media and we are well aware of what is going on in Ukraine at this moment. We know that feeling of hopelessness, fear and uncertainty of what is going to happen next. We have loved ones, family, people from the same countries as us, and we also have listeners in Ukraine. We just want to say, know that on this other end of the world, we have you in our thoughts, we have you in our prayers, and we just wish that this comes to an end pretty quickly. Hello listeners, and welcome to another episode on African Teapot. Today's episode is titled Female Genital Mutilation, and in the course of this episode, you will hear me refer to it as FGM. Before we get into that juicy stuff and learning process, I just want, want to say a quick thank you to Lini, that's my co-host, uh, silent as of now, <laughs> my co-host, um, co-writer, co-editor, everything on African Teapot. She was really, really passionate about this topic. She suggested this long ago. We didn't get a chance to do it in season one. And now we finally thought it would tie perfectly with Women's Day and March just, you know, celebrating and highlighting women across the world. We thought, let's bring awareness to FGM. Even though um, FGM Awareness Day was in February, I believe February 6th was FGM Awareness Day. But we went with the theme of love. And so we talked about marriage instead because we thought we should talk about something a little bit loving, you know, especially with COVID and the last trokoshi that we did, you know, it it was all heavy. So we thought we should do a little bit of loving and then get into FGM this month so finally Lini's wishes came true (laughs) and in the course of putting this together she and I had a lot of teachable moments we had fun we had moments of oh my gosh we cleared out our own ignorance and so we, we are just really excited for you guys to follow us throughout the episode and leave us the comments and along the way you have questions you know you ask and we are we are here to answer all of your questions you know, the best we can and refer you to the resources that we used in researching this topic. Okay, now that we have that out of the way, according to WHO, World Health Organization, female genital mutilation involves the partial or total removal of external female genitalia or other injury to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons okay this practice has no health benefits to girls and women and more than 200 million girls and women alive today have undergone fgm in 30 countries in africa the middle east and asia where fgm is practiced fgm is mostly carried out on young girls between infancy and age 15 FGM is a violation of human rights for girls 
and women. FGM is recognized internationally as a violation of human rights for girls and women. It reflects deep-rooted inequality between the sexes and constitutes an extreme form of discrimination against girls and women. Okay, so I thought that was important to know. And since we are going to be looking at this from an African perspective, of course, we are African teapot, uh, I thought it would be great to just mention the countries in Africa that this is most prevalent in. This doesn't mean it only takes place in these countries, but these are the countries that really have that um, social pressure in high numbers to practice FGM. Okay, so the first is Guinea, Sierra Leone, Gambia, Mauritania, and Burkina Faso, as well as Sudan and Egypt. Okay, uh, Djibouti is there as well. So these are the countries that you would find, you know, FGM practice in really high numbers compared to other African countries. So before we get further into anything i want us to take a little listen to this video so we can understand the different types of fgm there are four types of fgm type one clitoridectomy meaning removal of the clitoris type two excision meaning removal of the clitoris and the labia type three infibulation meaning a narrowing of the vaginal opening sometimes through stitching type four all other harmful procedures not covered by the first three, including pricking, stretching, scraping, or even using acid to mutilate parts of the genitalia. Once more for everyone in the back, it is non-medical and has zero health benefits, but it can cause a lot of other things. Now that we've listened and understood what the different types of FGM are, uh, I think let's look at the immediate and long-term complications of FGM. And this is according again to the World Health Organization. So some of the immediate complications of FGM can include severe pain, excessive bleeding, that's hemorrhage, uh, genital tissue swelling, fever, infections like uh, tetanus, uh, urinary problems, wound healing problems, injury to surrounding genital tissues, shock, and even death. Long-term complications can still be vaginal problems, that's discharge, itching, bacterial uh, vaginesis, and um, other infections, actually. Um, you have urinary problems, menstrual problems, scar tissues and keloids, uh, sexual problems, the increased risk of childbirth complications, and sometimes there is a need for later surgeries for example the sealing or narrowing of the vaginal opening may lead especially for type 3 all right may lead to the practice of cutting open the sealed vagina later to allow for sexual intercourse and childbirth sometimes genital tissues um, will have to be stitched again several times including after childbirth hence the woman goes through repeated opening and closing procedures further increasing both immediate and long-term risk. Then, of course, we've got psychological problems, which could be depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, low self-esteem, just to name a few. Uh, actually, I just want to go back on 
this issue of surgeries. Um, when we talk about type 3, that's when the woman's vagina is stitched and probably just a little opening is left for her to pee and to menstruate and something like that. So when the hole is so tiny that during intercourse and childbirth, they have to reopen the stitches, right? And then so, because healing has taken place over time. So when they reopen it, they still have to restitch it again, okay? And then they'll have to open and restitch, you know, open and restitch as, as it calls for it, especially during childbirth. So each baby you have, that has to be a process and a procedure. These are all long-term effects. So like I said, you've got both long-term and immediate complications of FGM. Now, let's go into who is at risk. So according to the World Health Organization, 3 million girls are estimated to be at risk of FGM yearly. And so FGM is a global concern. So now we're going to look at some of those cultural and social factors um, that, F, that still cause FGM to keep, to keep alive, right? Because people are still practicing it. It's still out there. Why is it still out there with people kick, a lot of people kicking against it? And we have heard of all the complications someone can possibly have. Um, why is this still going on? All right. Um, the reasons why FGM is performed varies from one region to another as well as over time and it also includes a mix of sociocultural factors within families and communities so it's different wherever you go but i from our research we realized that fgm is a social convention so there is a social pressure to conform to what others do and have been doing right as well as a need to be accepted socially and so that fear of being rejected by a community is so strong that it also serves as a motivation, right? I don't want to be hated by my community to the point that I would do whatever my community asks me to do. I don't know if that makes sense, yeah. But um, FGM is often motivated by beliefs about what is considered acceptable sexual behavior. It aims to ensure premarital virginity and marital fidelity, okay? Uh, FGM is associated with cultural ideals of femininity and modesty, which include the notion that girls are clean and beautiful after the removal of body parts that are considered unclean, unfeminine, or male, right? Some... Uh, some people even see it as being motivated by beliefs about what is what is the right thing to do in terms of doing the right thing that your leaders have asked you to do especially religious leaders okay so and there is this uh and some people also believe that the practice has religious support but what we found out in the course of our research is none of the holy books across different uh, religions actually say something is wrong with with female genitalia it doesn't say anything about the woman's clitoris being a problem or it should be taken out because it's unclean not in christianity not in you know islam or buddhism or judaism like etc like there is nowhere in the holy books for each religion 
that says that a woman is unclean because she has her clitoris. But yet again, we've got religious leaders and people using religion to say these things, it's, it's unclean, so women need to take that part off, right? And this fact that FGM is also considered as a necessary part of raising a girl um, and a way to prepare her for adulthood and marriage. And it's also considered acceptable sexual behavior. So pretty much a wo- what, this, what all of this means is a woman cannot stay faithful to her husband or, stay or, or abstain from sex before marriage if her clitoris is on, right? If her clitoris is on, then sexual activity should be taking place, right? So there, it's not the thinking of you need to train a girl that just because you have these sexual desires or thoughts, train them what to do with it. Kind of like you train boys what to do when, you know, when that feeling comes. It's our place to educate the kids, the girls, what to do when that feeling comes. But this is not the case. The girls have no chance to choose what to do when they get the feelings, when they get these feelings. What they are thought to do is we need to take that part out that we believe is what causes you to have the urge because it's unclean. You see? And if you don't do this, then we, you are shunned by your society. And most people do it, especially if it's attached to marriage. You can't get married if you don't get circumcised as a woman. If you don't have FGM done to you, then you are not a viable candidate for marriage, right? With all of these things, then we have situations that we are just not able to end FGM as quickly as we would love to, okay? It is hard. I would say that it is very difficult, but it's it's not an impossibility. We can do it, but we need... A lot more which we are going to get to in a minute anyways but I thought we should have a little general background as to why um, this is still going on and there is someone that I would really like for you guys to listen to she is an FGM survivor she um, is an activist and she is also a therapist her name is Leila Hussein I was cut for my future husband so I don't have sex outside marriage, so I don't enjoy sex. Primarily, my body is just there to carry babies. This is me as a survivor, as a therapist. FGM is not a cultural, traditional practice, but actually it's child abuse. That particular day was quite interesting, and it was only my neighbour's daughter that said to me, oh, you must be really looking forward to today. And I was like, okay. And I thought, well, it's not my birthday, what the hell's going on? And she said, oh, you're having your <coughs> good name done. So good name means FGM and Somali. She must have been eight, nine years old, so it's a child telling another child what's about to happen to them. She started to explain what it was, and I'm sitting here thinking, but mummy told me no one should touch my body. So it was a conflicting messages that was going on in my head. But as she's explaining this, I could hear a scream coming down from the other side of the house, like screaming, it was my sister. It was like an out-of-body experience before I could even do or think anything. It was like, get Layla. Get Layla, it's Layla's turn. And, I mean, I ran off. Obviously, I'm seven years old. There's only so much running I can do. So they grabbed me, pinned me on this table. 
women who held me down, these were aunties, family members, you know, family friends. Before I knew it, I was screaming and I could feel my flesh being cut off. But I just remember him saying, you, you be naughty, you know, you, you behave yourself, you know, it doesn't hurt. And I blacked out from that moment. So, I had FGM done, was home for two weeks, recovering. The weekend after, we were back at the beach. Life was normal again. That's just the way it was. Once you undergo something like this, there's no way back. There's no way back from this. My mother um, wasn't just cut once, she was cut twice because a neighbor thought not enough flesh was taken away. And for me, when we talk about FGM, <clears throat> there's so much focus on the type and what happened. What we need to focus on is this idea that we can just go and examine children's genitals. What I experienced was actually one of the worst forms of abuse. The doctor that cut me would never be seen as a paedophile because he's, he's, he's checking my genitals under the label of a doctor. People giving me any reason, they would say, it's their religion, it's their culture. I mean, none of the holy books mention it. It's practiced amongst all religions, but none of the books mention it. However, fundamentally, FGM, it's there to control women and girls' bodies especially their sexuality. I mean, every 11 seconds, a girl is being cut. So the fact that we're not outraged, it's absolutely crazy to me. The world hasn't tackled FGM because the majority affects black children. There will be an outrage if this was white girls. I mean, look what's happening in Hollywood. It's great that we're now naming and shaming sexual harassers and abusers. But black women have been doing that for a while, but no one listened. You know, we can't say every child matters and then pick and choose the ones that matter. I 100% wholeheartedly believe FGM will end, but the only way that's going to end is we need to end all forms of oppression against human beings. My name is Leila Hussein. After listening to Leila, uh, that was really, that was just a little piece I chose to put on today's episode, but that is really heavy. Um, when you listen to it and the fact that um, these young girls are not even aware of what is going on, right? Um, I will get into another story of how unaware these girls are and the impact it has on them as adults. But before that, I want to hit on a point that Leila made. In her case, you could hear her say she was a diaspora kid. And so when they went back home, I guess they could afford and they wanted uh, a, a professional, a doctor to do it. You could hear her talking about the doctor. And in another um, interview I saw of her, she was talking about the trauma that gave her because each time she saw, she goes to the doctor, she and she, she was having her babies, you know, there was, her body was going through this rejection process because she has associated um, doctors with FGM, with this traumatic Thing she went through when she was seven, right? So I want us to see what would cause medical, what role me, uh, medical professionals have to play when it comes to FGM, right? Um, and it is called medicalization, uh, medicalized FGM. So medic, medicalized FGM, I'm sorry, is when you have a health professional do the act rather than having family members and your grandma or aunties do it, right? So you have someone who comes in the name of a professional. So this includes the, the belief that there is reduced risk 
of complications associated with med uh, medicalized FGM as compared to non-medicalized FGM, right? There is also a belief that medicalized, uh, medicalization of FGM could be a first step towards full abandonment of the practice. Again, healthcare providers who perform FGMs are themselves members of FGM practicing communities and are subject to the same social forms. So they don't know anything different. They think it's right, so they go ahead to do it. And then you also have the point where they think, oh, it's better because if there's any complication, I can handle it. Or I'm so much of an expert, you know, as a health professional, that this is going to go ahead pain-free and it's, everything is going to be good, fine, and, you know, and all of that. There, is, there, there may be also a financial incentive to perform the practice, right? So most of them are doing this and they're getting paid for doing it. So I just thought this was interesting to highlight uh, before we jump into the, the next story. And um, in this next story, Aminata, I want us to pay attention to how, because she was a teenager when hers happened, not as young as uh, Layla. And I want us to pay attention to how her family explained this to her. So I just want us to understand that most times there is little or no explanation to these girls that are undergoing this pro uh, procedure as to what is happening or why it's happening. And sometimes even what they tell them is false, right? So it's when they are grown and they're having all these complications. And so there's this irrationality and there is no closure to what happened. And so it's when they are way older that they start understanding what happened, okay? And just take note of, Layla's story when she said her mom had to be circumcised twice because a neighbor thought not enough skin was taken off. I mean, I just want us to see how people think and how people think people just believe this is, this is just something done and dusted. But yet we have the effects of FGM lasting a lifetime for most of the survivors. So before I talk too much, which I am, I want you guys to listen to Aminata and then we come back after that. You have made me... So remember a sad full moment in my life because I was at the age of 16 that my mother took me for initiation. It was during the Easter holiday that's April and May. So I went to the village, there was initiation. To be honest, I never knew what I was going through until we get there. Then somebody tell me, take off your pants. It was taken off. Take off your clothes, everything. It was all everything was taken off from me. Then somebody came and told me, my aunt, Ami, lie down. Then I lie down. Hold me tight, yeah? Anything, hold me tight. Then I asked, what are you doing to me? Then I saw my gr grandmother with a knife. Then I said, grandmother, what do you want to do to me? 
He said, I want to shave you. You just lie down. So I was there hopelessly. They start the shaving. Then I, I, I feel some hard pain. It was not easy for me. I have to fought them. Everybody scattered. Then I was there bleeding. It's cruel, it's barbaric. It's just a revenge that they will say that if hey, family all don't go through, now you know they go through. No. Because they want you to feel the pain that they have gone through. I, Aminata, is standing in front of people, giving my testimony, making people to join me to do the campaign. I have the belief that after 10 years, it will be a matter of a past. And you're listening to these stories. Um, the question or the thought that comes to mind is, what is being done? To stop this, right? As you hear from the survival, there's a lot of from the survivors. Sorry, there's a lot of active work in terms of advocacy. People talking, survivors talking a lot about it. Um, Aminata's story is from the Guardian. That's um, where she had the interview, and they interviewed another young girl who refuses to do this, and she's been ostracized by her community. Right? She refuses to do it. Just go to The Guardian and you go check out um, FGM. You would find Aminata's story. It's along with another girl. I couldn't just put hers here because she was... I don't think audio is going to do it justice, right? Because it had a lot of translation in it. But um, we think, what is being done to stop this? When we listen to all of the stories. And who is to blame? You think, well, it's why are women doing this to their children, Right? How can women who went through this kind of pain be inflicting it on their kids? Um, I commend uh, Layla for standing up. She said her advocacy started at 21 when she had her daughter. Not at 21 necessarily, but when she, I guess maybe there was that pressure to do it to her daughter and she refused, right? She was like, no, that's kind of when she started nursing that idea of, I'm not going to do this when she had her kid because she, has a, she had her kid at 21. So, um, for Aminata, you could hear from her how she said, because the women um, went through the same thing, they feel like they need to inflict the pain on somebody else. Because you did it, somebody else has to go through it. Which, if you remember earlier, we we're talking about those social norms, those, like, just because I went through it, it suddenly becomes a culture that you dare not try to opt out of it, Right? So you keep inflicting the same pain that you know was painful. You keep doing it to somebody else. And it's kind of like a psyche thing, right? Um, I went through pain because I survived it. Then you too can survive it. It's that kind of stuff. I'm going to get into another audio of where this blame goes. Because I think everybody has a part to play. In every problem, if you're not actively doing something to stop something, then you are in an enabler. For something like this to continue, those perpetrating the act have a role to play. Um, our policymakers have a role to play. Those financing this act, those holding on to this custom and traditions and making sure that these people who are doing it should keep on doing it. It's all like a, it's, it's, it's a cycle. 
right? That needs to break from, needs to break through different, different and so many other ways. Which brings me to what the World Health Organization has done. In 2008, the World Health Assembly passed a resolution on eliminating FGM, emphasizing the need for uh, concerted actions in all sectors. That is health, education, finance, justice, and women's affairs. So if you look at it, all of these moving parts have to come together before we can completely stop FGM. Okay? Those who financed it, those paying for it, those who, uh, uh, the health professionals who are taking part in it, um, at schools, at hospitals, are people being educated about this? That's the health sector. What is public health of that community, of that country? What is it doing? Is it doing enough job to inform the, uh, the locals about the dangers of FGM, right? Justice and women's affairs. When people report it, because this is illegal in so many countries, but still it's being done. So when, when people come to the hospital, to health professionals, are they equipped to see the signs, report it, and they, are they persecuted? So justice and women's affairs, all of this comes under that umbrella. Okay, so the World Health Organization realized that you need all of this before you can successfully end FGM. And we should all consider all children equal, right? Like they're saying, male or female, black or white. All kids should not have to go or should not be subjected to this kind of pain for no reason. If there were health reasons, say like for male circumcision, we, we understand the health reasons that certain religions have to do, then they do it, right? It could be for, you know, we are not here for male that. I don't want to bring that conversation into it. But if there are no health benefits at all for doing something and rather you have more complications, then definitely that is something that has to be addressed and has to be addressed in a global scale. And um, the UN uh, World Health Organization and UNICEF, like Lini and I researched, have a ton load of policies, rules and policies and people that break these policies. They have all of that in place. And I think implementation is probably where a lot of this kind of falters. Um, people upholding what these organizations have put in place, the penalties they have put in place. Um, because if you look at it, their World Health Organization reports a financial burden of $1.4 billion. As of 2018, $1.4 was used in issues, health issues for women that resulted from, H, uh, from FGM. And they only, and then they realized that in there's going to be an expected rise to like two point three billion in thirty years. So by twenty forty seven, if FGM prevalence remains the same, that means it, we are not doing anything to stop it to make the numbers lower than it is today. Then we are going to have like two point three billion put into treating and reversing some of these procedures that were done on these young girls. So these are things that we need to take home with us. These are things we need to look into 
and we should not be passive about it okay you can refuse you can stop i think i'm going to put some stories i have about four people reached out to me about this fgm personal stories i'm going to see if they want to share what happened some i think some or two of them were more like they were about to be done to, it was about to be done to them and their mothers stopped it so women we we have to be we have to be together in doing this along with the men because if it's just the women fighting alone like we realize it's not going to help we all need to put our hands together but like i said let's take a listen to this um audio and we would understand how it is set up in terms of blame and realize that that is not really going to help it's more or less let us try to look for ways to stop that belief right and stop it with the different heads it's got it's not just got one head there's finances there's education so it's a whole lot just listen to this and then we come right back people always say to me oh you know this is something that women do to other women i think what people need to understand the reason women are in that position if they don't do it they'll be ostracized for it they're not the good wives they won't be the good aunties so we need to understand they live under a patriarchal system controlled by men so the idea if they don't do that then they become the terrible moms the terrible women but also coming from a clinical side in my head there is this idea of if you admit this is wrong then you're going to have to do something about it i think women continue because they need to make it okay for themselves cuz they've right. been through it themselves so there's a it's it's easy to blame these women but what people need to understand there's a whole environment mm. that would blame them even more if, if they, they don't, don't do it do i think there has to be an understanding i'm not it's not right but we need to understand for me i i've had conversations with men who would say to me well you know she did it and i said but you paid for it it was your finances that paid for it you know you knew it was happening so somehow that day and i think men chat always get out of this conversation i go you know you picked your daughter's name you know you'll pick the school she goes to you might even pick who she gets married to but that day inconveniently you were not available <laughs> so there is there is a sense right we can let the women take the bait for this one even though it's financed right by the men so we need that that that's what happens you know okay it's it's easy to blame the women but it's that's not the reality of that's it. not the reality no. so after listening to this you would realize that there is a blame game going on nobody wants to take accountability or responsibility but we do see that there is suppression there is oppression definitely there is abuse and there is taking advantage of people's situation and just shifting the blame onto somebody else but these young girls are all kids and they are all daughters to both father and mom so we all need to put our heads together as a community if you're a doctor a nurse you are supposed to save lives you are meant to protect lives not only saving them but protect them not inflicting pain for no health benefits right that is an abuse of your office and Leila has a point there is just something wrong with looking at children's genitals right but because you're a doctor and then that that gets a pass no that's wrong and that's why it's a human rights violation so i want you us to see that blaming 
is not the point, but accountability is what it's going to take to shift and shake these FGM practices in these communities. And so at this juncture, I want you to just think, this is to let you see, ponder about your society. Is this going on there? Are you doing enough? Do you know enough? So you can always go for research. The educational videos that I watched and the audios that you listen to are from or is from UNICEF. And then uh, Leila's story is from uh, Global Citizen. And Aminata is from The Guardian. You can all go watch their videos on YouTube and research this on these websites. And also the interview where she was talking about the blame, that's Leila. Um, that's on BBC News Africa. So you can all go look at this. You have questions, you let us know. You have areas that we're not very clear on the podcast episode, or you want more clarification or direction as to where to go. Please contact us. This conversation continues on social media, as you all, you all know. Um, so check us out on Facebook, on Instagram, or email us at africanteapot at gmail.com. And we keep the conversation moving. We try to learn, teach each other, and just it's just a journey. So this is more to create awareness. And thank you to our survivors for sharing their story. And for those out there keeping an eye on this, the activists working on this, the therapists, survivors who are hanging in, you know, um, thank you so much. And if you're in a community and you want an out, just check on all these websites. You would have numbers to call and areas in your community you could go to for help. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I'm going to just drop my mic, but I'm going to play this last um, audio of what is expected of us in terms of changing this. Okay. See you guys next month for another episode. We end FGM forever. Education, teaching doctors and teachers what signs to look for and how to respond sensitively. Cultural intervention, survivors telling their stories to their own communities. Laws and policies, enforcing consequences when FGM is carried out and making policy changes that further deter the practice. The time to end FGM is now. Thank you for listening and hope you join me for the next episode. You can always reach us via email at africanteapot at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at, at african underscore teapot. Thank you.